Now, there we go. Do you have your Bibles open with you to Genesis 12 as we come to, to wrestle with the text again this morning? But before we do that, let's just pray for insight that the Lord would, would truly move us this morning. Let's, let's pray. Almighty God, we know that you are faithful to your word and that your promises to us hold. And so we come to your word confident that you will work in our hearts this morning. Open our eyes to what you have for us and let it move us to worship. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. This morning's verse is probably one of those ones that at times we can read and make us ask, what is going on here? So if you read through Genesis, you'll see that we are introduced to our big problem when sin enters the world. And then God promises us a hero who will come and defeat the enemy and save us from our sin. And then we got all these genealogies where we are always asking, is this the hero? Is this the one? And so after a few stories at the start of Genesis where things get progressively worse, we get this genealogy which ends in the story about Abraham. And so the reader is thinking, here is someone significant. This is the line of the seed of the woman that was promised all the way back in the garden. The seed of the woman who was going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent to come through this guy's line. And so we have this hero held up to us. And then in the very first episode of his career, we see outrageous failure. Now, when we think about Abraham, the, the man of faith, and we read through his life, or any character in the Bible's life, really, it's, it's tempting for us to slip into thinking that the point of the text is that we be like Abraham. Be good. Act this way. Earn your salvation. And so it's really great to spend time in passages like this one that just destroy that way of thinking. Because you might have noticed this is no story to inspire great moral conformity. Something else entirely is going on here. But, but to see that, we're going to have to remember the, the context of, of where we are and what themes are being set up in Genesis and as a bit of a tip in how to do that for your own Bible reading, one way of seeing these connections is, is to think, what does this remind me of? Or where have we heard this before? So look with me at verse 15. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. So they desired her or thought that, that she was good in some way. And then she was taken into his palace. Just think about that again. They saw, desired, and took. Now, what does that remind you of? Well, maybe you can remember way back to when we went through Genesis that this was the pattern that we saw in the garden with Adam and Eve. Their rebellion, original sin, started by seeing the fruit, desiring the fruit, and then taking it. And so when Pharaoh's princes do this, they, they repeat this pattern, it should bring to mind with us a sense of rebellion, of people working against 
God's plans. The events of the garden echo throughout scriptures. The events of the fall where where sin enters the world followed by God's promise in how he was going to deal with the problem in providing the seed of the woman. That's the context for everything that we read. And when we, so when we were reading this, we need to have all that in mind as a backdrop. That there is this conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the ultimate blessing and hope are only going to come when that seed arrives. When that child has his heel bruised, but then once and for all crushes the head of the serpent. That all their hope is in the promised child of this couple. That their trust is needs to be in the faithfulness and promises of God. And so when we come to a passage like this, the first thing that should jump out to us is that God's promises seem to be in danger. So look with me to to verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And if you take notes, underline and note down that, that this land is the promised land. In the previous verses, we just heard the Lord promise to give this land to Abram's offspring. Abraham is in the spot of blessing. He has heard from God. He's built an altar, an abiding marker of what God has said so that he and his descendants would remember that this is the land that God had given them. But then a famine comes to this promised land. And Abraham is faced with something that brings about a doubt of God's provision. It makes the the characters question God and, and the reader almost to hear the whisper of the snake back in the garden. Did God really mean that? Is this really where you're supposed to be? Sure, look around. It's no good here. There's nothing for you here. Leave. And so what does he do? Does he think that God will be faithful and and stay with him? Does he think that the blessing of the land is worth the current hardship? Psalm 33 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who, who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Does Abraham or Abram here believe that and walk by faith rather than by sight? What does he do? He leaves the promised land. He goes down to Egypt to the Pharaoh who wears a snake on his crown. Now, maybe he looks around and and doesn't trust God's provision. Maybe he looks about and sees the state of the land and, and doesn't think that this gift that God is giving to him is actually any good. Whatever the reason, whatever we think of Abraham here, what is clear to us is that the promise of God is being put into danger. The, the, the hope for the solution of all our sin is suddenly being placed into jeopardy because our hero isn't trusting in God. This is Abraham's faithlessness in the face of famine. This is Abraham hearing God's promise of provision but listening 
to the lies of the enemy. This is a man knowing that God will provide, but not trusting in that when circumstances turn bad. And this is a mirror to our own faithless hearts. Because we have the promises of God that, that, that he is enough, that he will satisfy our every need. In Psalm 16, we read, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 17, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Or in the New Testament, Jesus saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Or again, Paul in Philippians, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God has told us that the true and lasting satisfaction only comes through a relationship with him. That regardless of what goes on here, it's that relationship will give us joy. But then the latest model of phone comes out. Or we see something on social media that, that someone else has, some Instagram life that we want. And comparison steals our joy because we actually believe that joy is going to come through that thing that we want rather than this relationship with the Lord. God has told us to, to rest in him. But so often our hearts go wandering after something else. Not content to receive the blessing that God has given us, we seek our blessing elsewhere. We see lack in our own lives of the lot that God has given us. And so we desire something else even if it means wandering from God. And all too often we complete that pattern from the garden, we reach out and we take it. For our students going to university soon, you're going to be the most visibly confronted with this. This world in all its shiny newness and excitement is going to be presented to you as a wealth of experiences that promise you a new life. Don't believe that lie. And it's great to hear from, from Lisa today, church family, don't let them believe that lie. Don't let them think and see people talk about the latest fad with all that excitement and we come in here and drearily talk about Jesus and how the joy of the Lord is our strength. Show them through your faith as a living witness the glory of God in your lives, just what he has done so that they won't be tempted to wander off after this lie. Our hearts are drawn to this, to want God plus. God plus wealth. God plus health. God plus security. Or maybe secretly, if we're honest, we, we just really want the, the health, wealth, and, and security, and we see God as a means to get that. But all of us are going to be faced with times of lack, how are we preparing ourselves for that? Are we building up supplies of faith, soaking in these promises so that when the lack comes, we can know that God is good? 
Are we trusting in God like we trust in the sun, the sun to come back up, even though night is very dark? Abraham didn't. Far from a man of faith here, far from someone to be emulated, here we see Abraham's faithlessness in the face of famine. But that's not all. Look to verse 11. So as he's about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So here he's, he's fleeing the promised land out of fear of the famine, but now it seems he's suddenly struck by fear of what's ahead of him as well. And so fearful of what might happen to him, he makes up this plan to, to pass off his wife as his sister. Now, some commentators say this is a smart move. This is a, a plan to protect both of them. He could pose as a brother and, and put people off with promises of marriage without really committing Sarai to anything. But really what he has done is just dangle his wife out in a line and placed her in danger. Now, as bad as that is in itself, Remember that this isn't just his wife. This is the woman through which the hope of the world was going to come. This is, once again, the promise of God being put into danger. And we can't just leave this without a comment on husbands, but before we mention that, note down if you can, the big important thing here. It's Abraham's faithlessness in the face of Pharaoh. God has told him that the one who will make an end to all of mankind's sin, the only hope for the world, would come through Sarai. But rather than treasuring her and protecting her, he uses her. Here, he is like a new Adam, failing to protect his wife from the serpent and putting her into a position where she might sin or be sinned against. Abraham's faithful, faithlessness in the face of Pharaoh it comes from his fear of man. Rather than trusting in God for his protection, Abram tries to take matters into his own hands. And so again, this is Abram hearing God's declaration of his plans, but listening to the lies of the enemy. This is a man knowing that God will protect, but not trusting in it when circumstances turn bad. And again, is this not just a mirror up to our own faithless hearts where fear of man directs what we say? I was with a, a brother from overseas this week and, and where he comes from, speaking about Jesus could lead to him being killed. And so when he looked at me and, and said, if this gospel is true, why don't you Irish tell people? All I could say back to him was the fear of man. We have become so scared of offending people, so terrified of looking silly and the social consequences that we have become paralyzed with fear. God tells us to proclaim his gospel, sends us as ambassadors into his world, but faced with the fear of man, of what they might do to us, we freeze. We show our unfaithfulness in the face of Pharaoh as well. 
I see that all the time in my life. And here, look, I can justify it to myself as well as anyone. I'm still building a relationship with that person. Now is not the time. And then a year passes. No, Neil, I haven't earned the right to speak into their lives yet. And then another year goes by. Really, I'm just scared. Really, I'm just showing my faithlessness. Hope we can see that Abram is not the hero here. Now, a quick aside to husbands. So the Bible couldn't be clearer. We have a responsibility to protect and to cherish our wives. Abraham isn't being presented here as, as clever, but as being foolish. Because we should never put our wives in a position where they are going to sin or be sinned against. Our call as husbands is to sacrificially love them as Christ loves the church. So yes, it does mean that you take the hit so that they can walk free. It means that, that we sacrifice our hobbies and our time for them. Now, don't get me wrong, go and do all the things that you need to do to relax. But do them once your wife has been cared for. Because if you're spending all your time on, on the golf course or, or the boat or, or whatever it is for you, whilst your wife is at home struggling, then hear this, you're putting her in a position of danger. Maybe not sexually like Abraham, but maybe in danger of hardening her heart. Even now with my wee girl, Grace, I know that whoever I give my daughter to will have to be willing to die for her. Well, husbands, God has given you one of his daughters. So go die for your wife. Now, if you haven't been doing that, don't feel guilty, don't feel condemned. Just feel convicted to go and start doing that today. There's going to be many of you here who are going through difficulties in their marriages, some suffering marital breakdown, and we don't have time to address all the intricacies of that. So I'll just say that if that's you, if you need help or accountability or discipleship, then don't stay quiet. Ask for help, whether it's from the church family, from elders or whoever, please seek the help that you need to do this. Now, I feel this, it's, it's all felt very heavy, hasn't it, as we see the reality of the human condition. Abraham's unfaithfulness in the face of famine and Pharaoh and his, his fear at the man trumping his, his faith in God. It's, it's all so close to home that, that it's going to hurt. We're going to feel it here. But there is another theme that comes up through the book, a theme that is like the sun breaking through the clouds. And that's God's faithfulness in the face of our failings. Okay, so we've already played the game of, of what does this remind you of? Let's, let's have another go. So think about the whole story again. The basic outline that we have here is of a famine in the land that causes a patriarch to go to Egypt someone being sort of sold into slavery, the Lord sending plagues to rescue them, and they're leaving with the wealth of Egypt. Now, what does that remind you of? Hopefully, your, your mind will have gone to the Exodus. 
This story where God rescues his people, where, where God is the hero. And what that tells us is that Moses is using a type of a story to get the reader to associate themes from one familiar event into another. So that's really common throughout the Old Testament, both positively and negatively. And, and we, in fact, we do it as well when we tell stories. So it's why if you're telling a story and, you, and a name like Chernobyl comes up, or why we, we know the plot line to every boy meets girl film, it's because we see patterns and apply similar thoughts and feelings to the new context. And so bringing the Exodus to mind imposes this subtle sense that, that God is the hero, that he is the one saving them, that, that he is the one that we should be looking to. If this had been about Abraham's goodness, then, then we'd expect some kind of judgment or, or condemnation. If it were about being like Abraham, then we'd expect some kind of reversal where Abraham comes out on top in the end. But we don't get that. Look at verse 17. And underline or note down that, who is it that's acting? It's the Lord. He is the one moving, not, not Abraham. God is the one fighting the seed of the serpent in order to protect the line of the seed of the woman. God is the one securing his promises even when it looks like they are in danger. What this theme is, is to give us is the sense that God is faithful in the face of Abraham's failings. God is the one who brings about the fulfillment of his word. And he does it regardless of our human failings. Because here we see Abraham as unfaithful, not trusting in God's promises to him about the land, as unworthy letting the fear of man endanger his wife, and ultimately as unable to solve their problems. Notice that he doesn't even speak to answer Pharaoh's charges, doesn't even feature after narrating his awful plan. And yet, we see God's people leaving the land of their slavery for Sarai and their shame for Abraham and heading back to the promised land with abundant wealth and their offspring not compromised. Maybe you remember from Deuteronomy here, but, but this is a sign of the covenant again. Land, seed, blessing. A sign of God's presence with them. In spite of utter failure, God doesn't abandon them. In spite of unfaithfulness and fear, their Lord walks beside them. Why? Because they are his people and he has given them his word. And he is faithful and he is worthy and he is able. What a God we have. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says this, if we are faithless, hallelujah, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Brothers and sisters, we have a God who will never deny us because of who he is. He has united us to himself through Christ and so he cannot disown us. Not because what we do, but because of who we are. We are children of God, brought, bought by Christ's death on Calvary. Abraham, Abraham was hoping in the seed to come, but we can look back to that rugged cross and see the sign of our salvation where Christ's heel was bruised, but the serpent's head was crushed. Sin and death defeated. We can walk in security and know that the battle is raging inside us 
but it's been won. That it's already been won. That God has declared that we are his. And even when we feel like we are in the valley and that we have messed up and we can't even look to him anymore, he looks to us and he picks up his children. Christian, your hope is not in how good you are. Your hope is in how good our God is and what he has spoken over you. Because even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. This wonderful passage, it points us to God, that that he is the hero, that, that he will bring about the promises that he has given us, that he is sovereign over us and not anything else in this world. So remember that and take that into the world with you. Sing praises to your God as you you walk along the way and see his beauty and glory in all that you do. As the band come back up and we're going to prepare to respond to God's word, let, let me just challenge you with something. So if you're reading this and seeing that you have been unfaithful when faced with bad circumstances, with famine in your life, Don't feel condemned. Don't listen to the accusations of the evil one. Instead, look to God and know that he is faithful. That even what the enemy works for evil, he works for good. If you're feeling convicted that you have been faithless in front of your personal Pharaoh and that the fear of man has dragged you down, don't feel condemned by this. Our Lord is not termed the accuser. Look to God and know that he is with you, that he has not forgotten you. God is our hero. He is the one who is in control. So let us delight in his promises and let us walk this path together, singing his praises. We're going to do that now as we respond to how faithful our God is as we sing together, sovereign over us. Family, let's stand and worship our Lord.